up in Metro Detroit, I was enamored with the Detroit Pistons of the late 80s. They won two world championships my junior and senior year in high school. So uh, this was kind of bigger than life for us. People like Dennis Rodman and Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars and Bill Lambeer. Uh, We went to a lot of their games when they were playing at the Pontiac Silverdome. I'm really dating myself here. Uh, they had 63,000. I was part of a crowd of 63,000 that watched them play the Boston Celtics. It was a horrible seat, way up in the top of the, of the upper deck. But, uh, but it was a $3 ticket, and um, you couldn't beat that when you were in high school. So uh, anyways, it's bigger than life. I remember being at a restaurant one time in the metro Detroit area and um, seeing a few of these guys at the booth across from me. And I couldn't wait to tell my friends, you know, that I had, uh, that, I had had that, that encounter. Um, at the time, I wanted to be like them, right? We kind of have these heroes we emulate. Uh, with a bit of perspective, I know that these are not necessarily people to emulate. Particularly certain people on this uh, <laughs> On this, uh, on this list, the trajectory of their lives was not necessarily admirable. Uh, but again, childlike heroes. Um, I, who, who was on your list? Right? Who were the athletes or musicians or actors or astronauts or whoever it might be that you had out in front of you as uh, a, a boy or girl growing up Uh, that maybe you aspired to be like. You esteemed them. You admired those individuals. Um, We might, you know, pause to think about who was on that list, who who, maybe some people on the list that, again, shouldn't have been on that list necessarily, but they were. And I think Paul, in this section of Philippians 2, really is encouraging us to rethink our role models. It's a really good process of evaluation. Who is out in front of me? Who am I aspiring to be like? Even as an adult, right? Who, who's my model? Who's my template? Um, at this point in the letter, again, Philippians chapter 2, Paul stops and highlights two individuals, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I want to just read uh, Briefly, the account of each one of them to sort of set the stage for us to think about what Paul is communicating here. So, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it, go, how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul was going to send Timothy to the church in Philippi. He wanted to get a report of what was going on. He wasn't going to send Timothy yet. He wanted to see how his case was going to turn out. Remember, Paul's in prison. He's on trial for the gospel. He wanted to have a better sense of how that was going to go. But once he had that sense, then he would send a report to the church by means of 
Timothy. And then there's Epaphroditus, uh, verses 25 through 30. Uh, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Epaphroditus, uh, he's actually mentioned here again at the end of the letter Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Epaphroditus was the one who had come from Philippi with a letter and with a financial gift. And now Paul is turning around and sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi with a thank you letter. And... uh, So he writes about these details here in this part of the text. Now, it's not surprising that Paul makes reference to these individuals. He does this sort of thing. We see sort of real-life details of, of comings and goings. What is surprising is that he does it here. Usually, in Paul's letters, this is the type of information that is conveyed at the end. You can go to Romans 16 to see a good example of this. Paul gives his letter, and then he stops and gives words of personal greeting, and he talks about various things that are going to be happening. I believe Paul talks about these individuals here because they embody the very characteristics that Paul has been teaching to the church in Philippi, the the very things he's been writing about the things that he wants them to embody. He had called them to walk worthy of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 27. He wants them to respond well to the grace that has been shown to them. And specifically, he has in mind that they would live a life that is marked not by selfish ambition, but by love and humility. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul really unpacks it there, what he wants to see out of them. And, of course, he has put forward Jesus as the consummate example. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, he highlights Christ. But at this juncture in the letter, he also presents Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's not just telling us about their travel plans. He is lauding their character. He is commending them to the church. And I believe in Timothy and Epaphroditus, we get a chance to see how gospel love and humility work themselves out in daily life, in real time. What does it look like? Let's consider... Five really distinct characteristics that jump off the page here. First, an orientation toward others. An orientation toward others, verses 19 through 21. 
They were willing to put the needs of others ahead of their own. Willing to put the needs of others ahead of their own. Paul says that Timothy was genuinely concerned for the welfare of these believers. He wasn't just simply working an angle for some personal benefit. Paul was deeply vested with these people, right? Acts 16, 17, the establishment of the church. Paul was flogged severely. He was imprisoned here in Philippi. I mean, he, he has pushed all his chips in on the table. He has invested a lot in making sure that the gospel came to Philippi. And he says that I, I have no one else to send other than Timothy who will... Um, really take a genuine interest in the welfare of this church. Matter of fact, Paul uses a really interesting word here. He says, I have no one like him. Literally, no one of like soul. We would say of like mind. Or we would say, I don't have anyone, a kindred spirit like Timothy, who will absolutely reflect my care for these people. Only Timothy is committed to doing what is best for the church. He kind of throws some other people under the bus here, presumably. We don't know exactly what Paul's getting at here, what he has in mind. If he means, you know, he's kind of alone in Rome. Maybe he's saying, I have no one else here in Rome that would have this kind of selfless concern for you. So I, so I want to send Timothy to you. Well, I was... Timothy so concerned about the church in Philippi, right? Why did he have such a heart for them? I, I want you to note the connection that's made here in Philippians 2, 20 and 21, and I've underlined it to try to help you connect the dots here. Paul says, I have no one like him, like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I'm going to submit to you that Timothy was concerned about the welfare of the church because Timothy was concerned about the things of Christ, right? He understood that Christ died for these believers. So those concepts were wedded in Timothy's mind, the, 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 the needs of the church and the interests of Jesus Christ, right? and I think that's a... That's a connection we've got to make in our minds. Uh, we could go to a lot of places in Scripture where that is clearly unpacked again and again and again. Jesus, in talking with his disciples in the upper room, John chapter 13 says, By your love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. They will know that you love me and that you are committed to me because you love one another. He certainly reinforced this principle to Peter. The last, one of the last encounters Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection by the Sea of Galilee, John 21, three times he asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter said, yes, you know that I love you, Jesus. And three times Jesus said, feed my sheep. Care for my flock. Right? There's the... The connection be made. If you love me, you will care for my church. One of the more glaring ones to me is uh, 
The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, before he was a follower of Jesus, he was on the Damascus Road, right, to persecute Christians. And Jesus confronted him, blinding light, Jesus confronts him on the Damascus Road Road and says, why are you persecuting me? For you see, when Paul was persecuting believers, he was persecuting Jesus. He was acting against Jesus. So, So Timothy got it. He understood this connectivity here, okay, and he loved the church. The scriptures do assume that we are concerned about our own interests, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) So you're going to take care of yourself. You're going to make sure you get something to eat. You're going to look out for your own welfare. That's a natural thing. The problem comes when I think only about my own interests, or when I consistently place my own interests over the interests of others. And this is what made Timothy so distinct. He held both of those things. It wasn't that he uh, was, was somehow treating himself poorly, but he gave attention to the interests of others as much as he gave attention to his own needs. And Timothy was unique in that regard. This is not a natural orientation. Right? But it really stands out here about Timothy. I've shared with you the uh, account of some of the early days here at Forest Hills, or what was then Eastmont. When Sherry and I first came to the church, um, we had been serving here for a couple of years when they asked me to consider being the, the lead pastor. And Sherry and I were very uncertain. Matter of fact, we were, actually, we were quite certain that it was not a good idea. Uh, the church had some measure of dysfunction. We were increasingly aware of some of the backdrop and some of the difficulties that they had gone through, and we were very inexperienced. It was our first ministry experience, so we didn't think this was a good, probably a good fit, and I have my whole list of things. And I went to Dr. Lillis, who was one of my professors at, uh, at the seminary, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and I went through my whole list of things, and Dr. Lillis listened patiently, and then when I was finished, he said, what is best for the church? I felt about this small, right? I'm just, my whole list was about me. I don't want to be labeled a loser pastor. You know, I don't want to get chewed up by this church. And, and Dr. Lillis just cut through all of that to say, what is best for the church? And I'll never forget that conversation. It was a watershed conversation for me, shaping how I think about the church. We need to ask that question, not just what's best for me. What is best for the church? Timothy is the poster child for this, (laughs) all right? He was thinking that way, thinking genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church. So an orientation toward others. The other uh, characteristic we see here that I think makes these guys so distinct, it's why Paul puts them forward, is a long-term commitment. Long-term commitment. Verses 22 through 24. They demonstrated faithfulness over time. Paul says to them, you know Timothy's proven worth. Literally, 
you know that Timothy has been put to the test. You've seen him in good times and bad times. The church had a history with Timothy. Matter of fact, we go back again to Acts 16 and the establishment of this church. Timothy was part of the church planting team. I mean, Paul was obviously running point, but Timothy was an apprentice working with Paul, and that had been at least 10 years previous. So they had seen Timothy. They knew what Timothy was all about. They had seen his proven character. And they were also seeing Timothy's, they also had an opportunity to see Timothy's relationship with Paul. This is what Paul cites here. It was like a son with a father. Timothy was like Paul's son. And over the course of that time, Timothy had subjected himself, submitted himself to Paul's authority, to Paul's mentoring, to Paul's leadership. And Paul goes on to say there as well in these verses that Timothy had served with him in the ministry of the gospel. This is slave terminology here. So Timothy was a guy who had had worked hard, had served others over time. Paul says to these people, you know that Timothy loves you. (laughs) Right? And part of that, just again, is a reflection of a long-term commitment. Significant relationships don't happen overnight. They're forged over time. Trust is not a switch that you just simply turn on. Trust is earned. I mentioned early years of the church here. uh, Through the first 40 years of this church's history, the average pastoral tenure was five years. So every five years, there was a new pastor. And I think that's why Sherry and I felt the weight of the decision. When the church extended a call uh, to us, um, we knew they didn't need another five-year person. I think they, they, we knew they needed a 10-year person, at least. Right? Of course, that was 26 years ago. But relationships, the point is relationships take time. You'll never cultivate significant friendships if you bail at the first sign of difficulty or discomfort. You'll never cultivate significant relationships by simply attending a, a morning service, keeping people at arm's length. There are no shortcuts to deep relationships. You have to put in the time. My dad always, my dad's a big hunter. I went hunting because I like to spend time with my dad. But he would always say, you have to put your time in in the woods. <laughs> Ugh. As a junior hire. Ugh. But he was right. <laughs> and if you want to have relationships, significant relationships, you're going to have to put in the time. And this is modeled so well here. One of the things that makes these guys stand out. It's one of the reasons Paul highlights them. A third characteristic, a collective mindset. A collective mindset. Verse 25. They were team players. They saw themselves as part of a larger group. Here Paul turns attention to Epaphroditus and He assigns Epaphroditus five distinct titles, one right after the other. Brother, 
fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, minister. Three of the titles describe Epaphroditus' relationship with Paul, and the other two titles describe Epaphroditus' relationship with the church. Each title, of course, conveys a separate nuance, but one of the threads that is woven through all of the titles is solidarity. Epaphroditus was not a lone ranger. He was a team player. My brother. This, of course, is a very basic designation. Epaphroditus was a believer. He was part of the family of God. But again, even there, Epaphroditus did not understand his salvation in purely personal terms. He understood his salvation in corporate terms. He was a sibling in the family of God. My fellow worker. Uh, This was a designation that Paul often used to describe close vested associates in the ministry of the gospel. Again, used fairly often uh, to describe some of his key co-laborers. Fellow soldier. This says a little bit more, doesn't it? It goes one step further to say that Epaphroditus had experienced hardship and struggle and had been engaged with Paul in conflict. Matter of fact, in the passage we read here, Epaphroditus fell ill. Uh, Now Paul's sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. It's almost as if he is sending a wounded comrade in arms back home and wants them to extend honor to him as a fallen soldier, right? I mean, you almost get this imagery here. But uh, yeah, this this is, Epaphroditus was in the line of duty, right? When he encountered his illness, and so Paul gives him this great designation, a fellow soldier. Uh, Your messenger, your messenger. Now he shifts again to talk about Epaphroditus' relationship with the church. He was their emissary, their representative, their messenger. Uh, We have to understand that in Roman culture, the state's care for prisoners was not intended for their health and well-being, but for their mere survival. It was up to family and friends to provide additional food, drink, and care. And so this is where the church in Philippi came in. Paul's imprisoned, and they took up a collection and sent it to Rome Uh, to provide for Paul's needs and perhaps also to send a couple people to actually physically help care for Paul. If there's medications that were needed or whatever, that all had to be handled by other people. And the church in Philippi embraced this. They were indebted to Paul, right? Paul had brought them the gospel. And so they joyfully wanted to help him. I couldn't help but think again about the congregational meeting Uh, They took up a collection, maybe already had the money there, and now the question was, who is going to deliver the gift? We just completed a long journey to Israel, right? There's a lot of headaches, and I get motion sick, and you know, it's not pleasant to travel. Who's going to make this big journey? And then you realize there's no airline, no TSA, But no airline, no airplane, right? And we're talking a journey of over 4,000 miles. 
for some perspective, this is a journey from Maine to Southern California. Without United or Delta or Chevy or Honda. Who is going to, who is going to deliver the gift to Paul? Who is going to take six or eight months or a year out of their off from work <laughs> and Epaphroditus either was volunteered or stepped forward. We don't exactly know. The point is he was not a peripheral worship attender. <laughs> this guy was vested in the church. He's also called the church's minister, a very interesting word, predominantly used to describe uh, those that were involved in the work of the temple, the priests who were carrying on sacrificial duties and taking the sacrifices and preparing them for the offering and so on and so forth. Which I find to be interesting in light of what we read here again in Philippians 4. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Notice how Paul characterizes it. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So they sent Epaphroditus with their offering to take to the temple to offer it to God, as it were, <laughs> right? So he was their representative. Epaphroditus was a team player. Becoming increasingly common in the Western church for professing believers to see themselves as spiritual free agents uncommitted, unattached. We've come to think of our faith predominantly in private, personal terms. And that's a problem <laughs> because God is not just doing... He is saving individuals, but He's doing something corporately. And again, they, they got it. They were at a collective mindset. They were team players. We also see here uh, a posture of empathy. It's one of the other things that Paul wants to highlight here when he, when he introduces Timothy or when he commends Timothy and Epaphroditus to them, verses 26 through 28. A posture of empathy. They were willing to view a situation from the other person's perspective. Willing to view a situation from the other person's perspective. We see here in these verses, 26 to 28, that Epaphroditus had been longing for them. And I would suggest to you this wasn't homesickness, right? He just, he loved them. His heart was with them. He was with them in spirit, right? So Sherry's got this little app on her phone, this Find My app, I think is the name of it. And, uh, you know, if People give you permission to know their location, and you have that in. So obviously all of our kids are on that little app for Sherry. And so she was opening it this week. We were just coming back Friday. We're coming home. All our kids are in town, by the way. So that's kind of a fun time for us to have everybody home. Lydia's home on spring break, and everybody else came into town. And Sherry's looking at her Find My app. And I'm like, I don't think you really need to look at that. 
She's like, yeah, but I like the way it looks. Everybody's in the 616. This is great, you know. Uh, but regardless of where the kids are, my wife's tracking it, right? She's, she's pulling it up several times a day. It keeps them in front of her. She's praying for them. This is Epaphroditus. <laughs> He's longing for them. He wants to be with them. But there's another emotion here. Don't, don't miss it. It says that he was distressed. And this is a really unique, a very graphic word. He was deeply troubled. The only other place this word is used is in relationship to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is deeply troubled, right? He knows what's coming, and he's sweating drops of blood. And this is Epaphroditus. His heart is really heavy. Why? Because they had heard that he was ill. Let's just stop and think about this for a minute. Epaphroditus had become quite ill. He nearly died. We don't know how the believers back in Philippi heard about it. My working theory is that they were traveling. Epaphroditus probably not traveling alone because he was carrying a large amount of money. So probably there was a little team of them. And they get 100 miles into the 4,000-mile trip, and Epaphroditus is not feeling well. And he is determined to go on, and they send somebody from the party back to Philippi to give a report. The point is that the church in Philippi only had part of the story, right? There's no email, there's no texts. Uh, They had heard that Epaphroditus was sick, and getting sicker, And they did not hear the rest of the story. And so in the midst of Epaphroditus' own sickness, to the point of death, he is troubled about them. Because he's concerned about what they're thinking and what they're feeling and how they're worrying. And he is deeply troubled for them. That is empathy, my friends. (laughs) That That is putting yourself in the other person's shoes, thinking about the situation from their perspective. Let me just tell you, when I'm sick, I'm not thinking of any of you. I say it to my shame. I'm thinking only of myself, right? Uh, This is like Jesus kind of stuff. This is uh, Jesus on the cross, right? Enduring agony that we can't imagine And he is concerned about his mother and her care and about John, his disciple, and about the people that were executing him. He's praying for God to forgive them. He's concerned about the the other criminal on the cross next to him who deserved what he had coming. (laughs) Right? I mean, this this is really powerful stuff. Part of what made... Epaphroditus so unique in his character and allowed him to have such a tremendous ministry in the church there in Philippi. Years ago, I remember trying to resolve a conflict with two older women here in the church. Uh, The one had confided in the other and that confidence had been betrayed. Something deeply personal had been shared with others and so there's this offense going on between the two women 
And when I confronted the, the, the one woman about her gossip, she quickly acknowledged her sin. But as we peeled back the onion and began to talk, she talked about the way her father had always demeaned her. Had always said, you'll never amount to anything and these kinds of things. And then just kind of mumbling to herself, she said, you know, I think I sometimes find my identity in having the information. I know this thing. I have something to share. I'm somebody. It didn't excuse her sin. Gossip is gossip. But as I sat down with these two ladies, there was a level of empathy. At least understanding what's going on in this woman's heart. (laughs) Kind of entering into her world a little bit. Boy, that's modeled here in this text in a really powerful way by Epaphroditus. So they were willing to view a situation from the other person's perspective, a posture of empathy. Uh, fifth, and finally, a willingness to risk. A willingness to risk, verses 29 to 30. They were willing to forego personal security and comfort. Willing to forego personal security and comfort. Epaphroditus had put his life on the line for the cause of Christ. Matter of fact, Paul uses the phrase unto death. He was sick unto death. The only other place that little phrase is used is just earlier in the chapter to describe Christ, who humbled himself even unto death. Right? I, I think that Paul is wanting to show how Timothy and Epaphroditus are reflecting in real time the character of Christ. He risked his life. It doesn't just say that Epaphroditus got sick, but that he risked his life, which leads me back to my working theory of how this all went down. Right? That they're traveling, they're partway into the trip, a couple hundred miles into this long journey. Epaphroditus gets sick. He's getting sicker. He could have made a decision to go back. He said, no, I'm going forward. I'm going to finish the mission that I've been given. I'm going to get this gift to Paul. He risked his life for the sake of the gospel. I've used the or cited the article in the past, but um, in 2007, a church in South Korea sent a medical missions team to Afghanistan. Uh, The group was comprised primarily of college-age or young professional women from South Korea, and the group was kidnapped by Islamic insurgents. matter of fact, the pastor leading the group, Baekhyung Kyu, was killed along with another hostage. Most of the group was ultimately released, but there was a tremendous amount of backlash uh, in the, the wake of this event. Uh, not directed towards the Taliban, but actually directed towards these missionaries and towards the church that sent them. People were outraged. How dare you? What were you thinking to send people into such an unstable, dangerous part of the world? Well, The article, the 2007 article, was simply entitled, Missions isn't safe. 
where did we ever arrive at the conclusion that missions is safe? (laughs) We live in a risk-averse culture. But our mission is not a mission of safety and security. It's not. 11 of the 12 original disciples died for their faith. In that article, uh, they said this, Christians have been flinching, slouching, and playing it safe for far too long. (laughs) We've developed a sort of scoliosis of the soul. Ouch. We see these guys, Timothy Epaphroditus, uh, willing to risk for a great cause, the greatest possible cause, the cause of the gospel. That doesn't make, mean we take foolish, uh, foolish risks, but it does mean we extend ourselves outside of our comfort zone. I want you to just consider for a moment the impact of these faithful friends. Uh, Paul actually draws attention to it. Verse 19, we're told that Timothy's visit would bring encouragement. Timothy's visit would bring encouragement. Notice what it says there in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So... uh, Paul focuses primarily on how Timothy's visit to Philippi was going to impact him, right? Timothy's going to bring back a report, and that's going to encourage Paul. But assumed here is the fact that Timothy's visit was going to also encourage the church in Philippi. Notice again how Paul says it. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered. I mean, the whole point of sending Timothy was that they were going to get a report on how Paul was doing. But Paul says, in addition to that, I too will be encouraged by Timothy's visit. And then, of course, there's Epaphroditus. His visit would result in joy. Paul's even more overt here. Verse 28, I'm the more eager to send him, Epaphroditus, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. So we see the impact of these individuals and how they were bringing about encouragement and joy in the church. It seems an unlikely path to joy. I mean, Epaphroditus risked his life. The church was worried sick about him. Epaphroditus could have just stayed in Philippi and avoided a lot of heartache, right? But there was a richness of joy that flowed out of this sacrificial service for Christ and partnership in the gospel. Their joy was even greater because of the struggle that they went through. Christian friendship, service for Christ alongside of one another in the highs and in the lows is a catalyst for joy. Those are the kinds of deep, lasting, enduring friendships that we long for, whether we realize it or not. So Paul again teases out this theme of joy, even here as he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then finally, there's an enduring principle. Here in verse 29, Paul moves beyond the specific situation to put forward a timeless principle. Receive Epaphroditus and honor such men. 
Honor such individuals. Highlight people like this. Point your children to people like this. Aspire to have this kind of character. If I summarize it this morning, select your heroes carefully. I would suggest Dennis Rodman shouldn't be on your list, right? Select your heroes carefully. And as we just process through that a little bit, who are the people in your life who are truly worthy of honor, who have exhibited selfless service, who have sacrificed to bring the life-changing message of the gospel to you or to others? Who are the people that you need to honor? Who are the people that you need to put before your children? That's a healthy list to construct, even as you're sitting there right now this morning. And what would it mean to honor them? You could jot them a note. Another great step before the day's out. Shoot them a text. Jot them a note. Thank that Sunday school teacher who invested in your life. Thank that coworker who has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Or maybe shared the gospel with you. Maybe a classmate. What would it mean to honor them? But notice here how Paul honors them publicly. He commends these individuals before the whole church. What would it look like for you to thank someone in a small group setting or at a praise service at church or through social media? I think you can use social media for positive stuff, can you? I don't, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it'd be a novel concept anyways. Who are the people in your life who are worthy of honor? What would it mean to honor them? And finally, are you living a life that is worthy of such honor? A life worthy of being emulated? Could you be listed among the individuals like Timothy and Epaphroditus?